Amen. I don't know about you, but I have been blessed extremely uh, this morning already. Amen. Uh, it's just always a joy when we get to share in the supper together and observe the elements. Just remind us of the body and blood of our Savior. I'm just still amazed that he would save me. So amazed. So grateful to be uh, with you this morning, grateful to be in God's Word. Uh, if you are visiting, this is your first time. We are happy you were here. I'm grateful that you have decided to join us this morning. We are in a study of the gospel according to John. And this morning we're going to be in John chapter 7. And we're going to be in verses 25 through 36. I'll be teaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version. If you don't have a copy of that, we have some in the back. Uh, they're on the connection table back there. Please feel free, get up, go get you one. That's our gift to you. We would love for you to have one of those. Um, but we think it's important for you to follow along in God's Word, to make sure that everything that is being proclaimed from this podium is God's Word and not my own. So I encourage you to look at the Word of God as uh, we are uh, looking and, and just observing what God would have for us today. So uh, John chapter 7, 25 through 36, I'm going to read this for us and then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help uh, because I need it and uh, we all do, right? So let's pray. Uh, well, let's read and we'll pray and we will get into the text this morning. John chapter 7, verse 25, would you hear the word of God? John writes, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. 31 Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Let us pray and ask God for his help this morning. Father God, we are so thankful for this opportunity that we have to learn, to grow, to be challenged, to be encouraged by your word. 
Father, I pray for each and every person that is here this morning. I pray that you would encourage the weary, that you would strengthen them in the knowledge of your love for them as displayed through Christ Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would lower those who are haughty, that may have walked in full of pride and arrogance, thinking they don't need anything that your word has to say. I pray, Father, that you would use your word to change their hearts, change their minds, open their eyes to the reality of Christ, and would you help us to leave here different than we walked in. Father, simply I ask what we know not you would teach us, and what we are not you would make us, and what we have not you would give us by your grace for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So who is Jesus Christ? I mean, this is the most important question you will ever answer in your life. Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus Christ is? What do you perceive him to be? I mean, who is Jesus Christ to you? See, what we see in this passage is a clear picture of a group of people who have truly mistaken the identity of our Savior. See, if you recall last week, we looked at verses 14 through 24, where we learned that Jesus decided to make his public appearance at the Festival of Booths by going into the temple and teaching. A very bold move by our Savior. And as a reminder, this festival was a very large, important festival that attracted people from all around the known world. So there was a, a large audience here. And as we examine the text, we observe the power, the authority, and the perfection of our Lord's teaching. And we let off, left off last week with Jesus indicting his listener. He indicted them and told them, listen, you are judging with false judgment. You claim to know things that you do not understand. He says, really what's happening is you, you claim these things about me, but really I'm doing the work of God. You think you know God, but you know nothing at all. And today as we pick up our study in verses 25 through 36, where John continues providing the details of the scene where Jesus is still teaching in the temple. And in this portion of John chapter 7, we are reminded of an unfortunate reality that exists in this fallen world. And it is this. It does not matter how much evidence exists that solidifies the claims of Jesus Christ. Sinful humanity will always find a way to challenge the identity of Jesus. It doesn't matter how much evidence is out there. Sinful humanity is prone to rebellion. See, like many, this group let their own ideas, 
their own experiences, their own perception of Jesus generate a false identity that they then impose on Jesus Christ. They say, well, this is what I think about Jesus, so this is what has to be true, and so this is how I'm going to see Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is dangerous. I mean, here we see this case of mistaken identity by this crowd. There are three categories of mistaken identity that I want to point out to us here that we see in this text. The first case is this. It's a mistaken case of his origin. They think they know his origin. They think they know where he came from. They have no idea, and we'll see that here in a moment. Second, we'll see the category of power. A category of power here. They don't really understand the power of our Lord. Third, we will see his destiny. His destiny. We'll see that in verses 32 through 36. Let's first look here at his origin. Look back at verse 25 with me. Let's read this again. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, remember he's teaching, so they're responding here, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So I want you to stop and imagine for a moment. Imagine that you had seen a most wanted picture. There was someone's face on that picture, and it said they are wanted for these crimes. And then I want you to imagine that you step into a room, and you see him standing right there. You see that person, they're, they're there, you, you know they're wanted, it's all over. And then to push it a little farther, they're not even that he's there, but the police are there as well. The, the people that have put him on the most wanted list. And they're, they're all together, but the police aren't doing anything. They're, they're just there and everybody's just kind of mingling together and you would be right to wonder why in the world are they not intervening here? Why are they not doing something? And that is basically what is happening here. I want you to get that picture in your mind to, to really, I want to plant you into the scene that is happening here. See, in verse 25, where John says, some of the people of Jerusalem He's actually identifying a specific group of people that's different than the crowd that responded back in verse 20. If you remember that, uh, they responded like, who's trying to kill you, Jesus? Well, this is a different group of people. There's actually three groups of people in this scene. The first group are the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the, those that are, that are hostile towards Jesus Christ. Uh, the second group of people that's identified is the crowd. The crowd would be the pilgrims, those that traveled from all over the known world that would have come to this festival, and they are there, and they are observing everything that's happening. The third group of people that John has just identified are the people of Jerusalem. Now, this would be the citizens of Jerusalem, those that live in Jerusalem. 
And since Jerusalem was the hub of the Jewish leaders, they likely would have known that the hostility to Jesus was, was growing. They would have likely known that Jesus was the topic of conversation when it came to the Jewish leaders and that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. If you remember, back in chapter 5, we are told they want to kill Jesus. They, they're after him. They're mad because he, he's healed a man. They claim that he has done this on the Sabbath and he's wrong. And then they get really mad when he makes himself, what, level with God. When he says, actually, I'm God. I do what I want to do. They want to kill Jesus. So this specific group of people know this. They understand this. And while Jesus is teaching with the Jewish authorities present, they rightly ask, like, isn't this the guy? Like, he's, he's right there in front of you. Why aren't you doing anything? This is the man they want to kill. And the lack of intervention from the leaders leads the people of Jerusalem to speculative reasoning. They say, well, okay, since they aren't intervening, maybe they've decided that he really is the Christ. Like, maybe they've changed their mind about Jesus. And they start to wonder. They start to question this. John tells us that they're, they're asking, hey, well, have they, have they changed their minds here? Have they decided that Jesus really is the Christ or that, that means the Messiah Christ is not Jesus' last name? It means he's the Messiah. So Jesus is there. They're face to face with him. But no sooner as the question is posed, they quickly dismiss the question. They quickly dismiss their idea, their assumption here, and they believe that they can dismiss it because they actually know where Jesus has come from. Look at verse 27. They say, but we know where this man, look, stop right there for a second. We're going to see this kind of language here over and over again. I think it's about six times that it's like he or this man. I mean, there's just arrogance all over this. There's this huge separation from this group. So here they say, we're, we, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So, brothers and sisters, what they claim to do here is they claim to know Jesus' origin. They claim to know where Jesus Christ has come from. They say this can't be the Christ because we know where this man comes from. Now, this indicates knowledge of his birthplace and also his birth parents. Now, in a way, they did know this. They did know a bit about who Jesus was. What was Jesus called? Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, now, that was a common way in this time to give someone description on who they were. Uh, it was a very primitive way of giving someone a, a, an identity. And so you would say, okay, that's Jesus of Nazareth. There weren't a, a lot of names then, and so there were a lot of people that had the same name. And so they would identify them by their place of dwelling, where they 
occupied, where they lived, where they were born. And so they also did know the birth parents of Jesus. They knew that Mary and Joseph were his earthly parents here. So when they say, we know where he comes from, they're half right. They know a little bit about Jesus. The problem is with what they say next. They say, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. Now, that's just wrong. It's wrong on all levels. And this is a reference to a false rabbinic idea that had risen in their day that said the Messiah would make his appearance suddenly, like out of nowhere, would just appear on the scene and would make his appearance. It, it taught that no one would be able to tell anything about his background or origins. Some say that this was actually a poor interpretation of Malachi 3.1. You can write that down, maybe look at it later. I'll read it for you, though. What it says is, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly, they, they grab that word, will suddenly come to his temple. They had a poor hermeneutic of this text. And listen, if that is the case, let me just remind you that this is a good reminder that people can take Scripture and take a false interpretation of Scripture to try to perpetuate false teaching. People manipulate Scriptures all the time to make it conform into what they want it to say. So these people have brought this idea up. They've, they've bought into it. They, they believe this idea. This false belief has caused them to deny God in flesh as they are standing face to face with Jesus Christ. Friends, I ask you, have you bought into false cultural ideas about Jesus? Have you bought into the lies that culture tells us about Jesus Christ? Have you allowed culture to shape your view of Jesus? I mean, have you bought into this stuff? Listen, we are to be governed, shaped, taught by God's Word, and God's Word alone. I mean, there is many reasons to ask this question, many reasons to do inventory and to see why and how we get to what we believe about Jesus. And furthermore, there are always new ideas that are coming up, right? And there are always new things that culture has. There is always a progressive idea out there that says, no, 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 they've had it wrong for thousands of years. This is what you should believe. So we must be a people that continually look at God's word. We must let right interpretation of God's word shape our view of our Lord. 
And listen, let me just remind you and remind myself, here's why this is important. Our views are tainted with sin, okay? Like, they just are. We want things the way we want things. We are tainted with sin. Now, those that are redeemed are not condemned or we are not controlled by that sin anymore. Praise be to God. But we still battle the flesh. Paul talks about this in Romans 7, right? I mean, there is a battle going on. And it is not our ideas that should govern our thoughts. It is God's word that should govern us. Listen, sometimes things we think we know, like the things we really think we know, like, no, 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 I I know this. Sometimes they're wrong. I have to remind myself of this time and time again. Sometimes the things that I hold closely are not the things that God holds closely. Sometimes the things that I don't care about are the things that God does care about. So we must continually be in our words, be in prayer, crying out to God, saying, God, teach me, mold me, conform me into the image of your son. Make me more like Christ. And then we press on. So Jesus here, he rebukes this way of thinking. He rebukes their thought that they've got it all figured out. They, They know what's going on. Look at verse 28 and 29. He says, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. This, Listen, I think that is just so important there. It doesn't slow Jesus down. It's like as he taught in the temple, he also, this is what he does. I mean, this is our Lord here, the confidence of Christ, the boldness of our Savior here. And he says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Listen. The people had no idea of Jesus' true origin. They had no idea. They, they thought they knew something, but it, what it revealed is their ignorance and their arrogance towards God. I mean, they might have known a little bit. They might have had a little knowledge of his upbringing, but... They had no knowledge of his divine origin. They did not want to know. So Jesus rebukes the people of Jerusalem here, saying, you think you know, but you only know the half. He says, my origin is unknown to you because why? He says, because you don't know the one who sent me, namely God. Like, you don't know God you think you know God, but you don't know. But these people, they don't stop there. They continue in their outrage, and we see them build on their claims by falsely then thinking they know the power of Jesus Christ. Let's look on in verse 30, under this heading, the power of Jesus. So they were seeking to arrest him. 
But no one, look there, no one laid a hand on him. Because why? His hour had not yet come. Now, notice here that John is still talking about the people of Jerusalem. He says here, so they. He says, the people that are giving these false claims of Jesus, so they, they're outraged. They're angry. They're mad here. They respond to Jesus' rebuke by trying to pull a citizen's arrest. Like, come on. I mean, just on the fact of his reputation as a miracle worker, like that, that's just ridiculous. He will try to do a, a citizen's arrest on this man. Like, let's be serious here. But their outrage, their anger that has now led them to this spontaneous attempt to arrest God, which is a very bad idea, it leads to nothing. Nothing. Nothing happens to Jesus. It says they don't even lay a hand on him. That can be interpreted, they don't put one finger on Jesus Christ. Nothing happens here to our Savior. And I'm going to tell you why. Because God said it wasn't going to happen. This is what the text tells us, right? Because his hour had not come. Listen, Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was sent to earth by God the Father on mission. He came to fulfill the mission that he was sent to do, the mission ordained by God. God's timing, God's way, God's sovereign will. And listen, God ordained the arrest. He ordained the crucifixion. He ordained the death. And he ordained the resurrection and ascension of everything that happened to our Lord. It was God-ordained. And we see this here in our text. Listen, it's not man's demand. It's God's will. Humanity had no power over our Savior. Humanity could not manipulate situations to somehow change the outcome of what God had ordained. Dane. Later on in John 7, in John 8, and then in John 10, we will see the same type of situation. We'll see that someone unsuccessfully tries to arrest Jesus, and what happens? Nothing. Nada. They can't touch Jesus until God says it is time for him to go. Saints. This should encourage you. Listen, this is your God. This is your God. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, a redeemed child of the King, this is your God. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, there's a lot of implications there, but one implication is that Jesus arrived, lived, died, and was resurrected at the exact moment in history that God intended in the plan of salvation, and that is applicable to you. Praise be to God. Hey, look, if it was up to me, this whole thing would have been messed up. And if it was up to you, the same thing would have happened. A.W. Pink comments here. He says, I quote, they could no more arrest Christ and they could stop the sun from shining. He says, until God's foreordained hour struck and the incarnate son bowed to his father's good pleasure, he was immortal. And that's speaking in the earthly term there, in quotes. Listen. This should also encourage us as Christians because the same way, in the same way that this applied to Christ, in a sense, it is applied to us. Let me help you see this here. Here's what I mean. Listen, God's steadfast hand of protection is sovereignly caring for us from before our first breath until our final, and on to eternity for those in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you how I get there. David writes in the Psalms, first in chapter 31, verses 14 through 15, he says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Notice what he says there. My time is in your hand. It's not his own. It's not his persecutors. It's not those after him. It is in God's hand. Again, David reminds us in Psalm 139, 16. He writes, your eyes saw my unformed substance. So he's talking about before he was even born before he was even uh, uh, beginning to form, his unformed substance here. He says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. He's like, the days hadn't even started. I wasn't even formed. And you knew every single one of my days. Praise be to God. That is confidence for us as Christians. And it's not just the Old Testament, the New Testament also. I'll read one passage that helps to clarify this, but it's all over Scripture. All over Scripture, but I'll give you one, James 4.13. Some of you might be familiar with this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, like, here's how you should think about your life to simplify, distill this down. He says this, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now listen, this doesn't mean that we should live arrogantly and 
recklessly, as if we are invincible and immortal beings. Okay, we don't just go out and, you know, do whatever we want and somehow think that that's just going to, God's going to bless that. He's going to care for us. But it should give us confidence to trust that the Lord is with us in every detail. Listen, every detail of your life. Listen, I know a lot of you are struggling with different things. Let me just remind you, God is with you. He knows you. He loves you. He has you. And listen, Christians, nothing happens to you unless the sovereign hand of the Lord allows it to take place. Listen, in trials, have confidence. He is working. In good times, have confidence. He is working. Fix your gaze on Christ. He has you. God is at work. We may not always see things the way that we should. We may not always like the way that things are playing out. But listen, God is working. He knows your days. He has them planned. And he is with you, saint. He has you. Take confidence in that. So this group has clearly mistaken Jesus' power. They think they have the power to overtake Jesus at their will. Like, we're going to arrest this guy, citizens arrest. Let's go, team. And nothing happens. I mean, they can't do anything to God. And it doesn't stop there, though. We, we don't stop seeing the power of Jesus here on display uh, just by his ability to to uh, evade the, the uh, attack, the, the arrest that's coming. Look at verse 31. He says, yet many of the people believed in him. They believed. People believed in him. And it goes on, they said, well, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So listen, some have tried to arrest Jesus, and some others now believe in Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly the way that they, uh, it all played out and how they came to this, but what we do see here is that because of some of the things, maybe the teaching of Jesus, the miracles, uh, they start to rationalize like, well, wait a minute, we, we've heard about this Messiah that's been prophesied and, and has been promised to us and we've been told that he's going to do these miracles. And like, well, is he going to do more than this man? Like, I, I don't think so. And, and John just tells us that they believed. John's not throwing that word around, that phrase around carelessly. He says some believed here. Their eyes are opened to the power of Jesus Christ. Their eyes are open. They see this. And listen, friends, I pray, I've been praying this week, I pray that the Lord would be so kind to the unbelievers in this room 
right now, today, to open your eyes to the power of Jesus. I pray that God would change your hearts, that you would see and receive the salvation offered to all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ as their substitute, the one who stood in your place, who bore the wrath your sins, my sins deserve. And that if you put your faith in him, you turn from your sins, you Cast your cares, your belief. You have faith that Jesus is who he says he is according to Scripture, and you follow him. You repent and believe, and you follow him, that you will be saved. See, the power of Christ is often mistaken by many. They reduce the power of Jesus to simply a good teacher a nice guy, a social rebel, or many other erroneous identities that deduct the reality of his divinity. Jesus is God, and his power is not defined by man. His power is unlimited, and his power is eternal. Praise be to God. Last, we see confusion over Christ's destiny. Look at verses 32 and 34 with me. It says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So John tells us that the Pharisees here, they observe, they kind of understand that there's some contrast going on in this crowd. That there's one side that they want to arrest them. There's another side that have now started to believe. They catch on that some are believing in Jesus Christ. Listen, they don't like that. This is the last thing they Wants. And so what this does is it fans the flame of hatred that started. Remember, we talked about this uh, month, two months ago when we were in uh, John chapter 5, about how we'll see this hatred start to build, the anger, the hostility that will build in these people, the Jewish leaders, especially as they learn more about Jesus, as his public teaching is on display, we see this contrast between believers and unbelievers. Rebellion grows or love grows. And so they say here, they say, this is enough. We're putting an end to this. And then they release a warrant for Jesus' arrest. They say, all right, that's it. The officers mentioned here are likely the temple police that responsible for, uh, they were responsible for maintaining order in the temple. They had their own kind of uh, set of um, the, those that would make sure that whatever happened in that temple was according to what the Pharisees wanted. If someone got out of line, uh, they, would, they would carry you off. They would arrest you. And so now we see in our text in this gospel account that 
Jesus is now uh, full on. I mean, he's a, he's a wanted man. He, his, his arrest warrant has totally been released. The road to Calvary is set. But remember, it's not their timeline. It's God's timeline. John gives us here this scene. We're told while the police force is concocting their strategy to, to go after Jesus, they're deciding, okay, hey, the time, the place, they, they're trying to figure out. They don't want to upset the people too much because some are believing. They don't want riots to, to uh, incite. And so they're trying to figure out, okay, hey, what, what are we going to do here? And here's what Jesus does during this time. And I, I just, once again, I love this story when we see how Jesus just continues to press on in the face of adversity. What does he do? He takes the opportunity to expound that he has knowledge of what's ahead. He knows what is coming, namely death on the cross which will ultimately lead him to his glorious ascension. Notice his language. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. Turn over real quick to John 17 with me. John 17. Let's, I just want to put this in front of you. I want you to read this, and we'll get to this next year sometime when we'll actually teach it. But I just want to point out here verses 1 through 5. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then he says in verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I mean, this is right before they arrest Jesus. He knows what's coming. And what we see here is that Jesus, even in chapter 7, he knows what's ahead. He knows exactly what is coming. He knows that what his destiny entails. He knew that his obedience would lead to glorification by the Father. Nobody could change this reality. The priests... The governing officials, the officers, the people, none of them could change where Jesus was headed. He says in verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now listen, this is a loving indictment towards those who will not believe. Essentially what he's saying here is, listen, the time is short. I'm going to leave. I'm, I'm not going to be here in front of you. The time is short. Respond now. You have an opportunity. Respond. Isaiah 55, 6 reminds us. The prophet says, seek 
the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Friends, we are not promised tomorrow. We are not promised anything in this life. And listen, Christians, this should compel us to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel to those that we know who are lost. And it should also compel unbelievers to repent. I mean, see the grace of the Lord that he would have you today, here today in this moment, that you're you're hearing, hopefully. You're, you're listening. You're, you're able to respond to Christ, to salvation that is offered. It is the kindness of our Lord. Maybe someone drug you here today. Thank God for them. And I pray once again that he would work in your hearts. But here Jesus teaches his listeners that he will be leaving soon. And what we know is that God now, in, as New Testament Christians, that he will return soon. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We don't know when it will be. But the Bible tells us we are in the last days that he could return any moment. But just as the case is today, many are not acceptant of this. Look here at verse 35. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. So this term, dispersion, was a technical term that was used to describe the Jewish community that were just scattered all over the world, the known world at that time. Some Jews had been living outside uh, since the Babylonian exile, and they didn't want to come back. They're like, no, nah, we're good. We, we like where we are. So they were called the dispersion. And a lot of Jews did not like the dispersion. They thought they were traitors. They thought those Jews were wrong. They thought they were just, how could they not want to return? So there's a bit of arrogance on display by this group. The word we read in verse 35, the emphatic word is the, how can we, we not know where Jesus is going? How is he going to go somewhere where we will not find him? Like, like we've got it together. How in the world could Jesus go somewhere that we would not know? I mean, the arrogance is just rampant. They think they know what's best. They think they know the fate, the destiny of our Savior, but they know nothing. Indeed, we know that the gospel will spread to the dispersion and the Gentiles, praise be to God. And once again, this will be on God's timing, not theirs. Jesus will do his work and he will be glorified. The Spirit will then descend and do his work. And that's the work that is continuing today. So as we close, I just want to remind you, brothers and sisters, we have this Holy Spirit working in and through us today, strengthening us, empowering us, enabling us to press on in the face of adversity 
Because listen, brothers and sisters, we too know our destiny. We know what's ahead. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So listen, this is your reality. Here's your identity, Christian. Your origin is was foreknown and predestined. And that is to be conformed in the image of Christ. Your power is that now you have been justified by Christ and Christ alone. You stand in right standing with God because you wear the robe of righteousness that was imputed to you by Jesus. And now you have power. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians. We're sealed. Listen, Romans 8 tells us that what is our destiny? Like Christ, our destiny is glorification. This is our identity. But listen, we don't just sit back and wait for our eternal destiny, do we? We don't just sit back and wait and say, oh, Lord, just like we, we should cry, Lord, come soon. But while we're here, brothers and sisters, we get active, fighting sin, making war on sin, proclaiming the gospel, obeying our Lord. And although at times it may be difficult, it may be tough, there will be highs and lows in this life, we can always entrust ourselves to the one who died for us to secure our eternal destiny, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Father, we thank you that as Christ, now we too have a new identity in you. Father, my fear is that Sometimes we, we place a mistaken identity on ourselves, that we believe things that are just not true. Lord, would you help us to be conformed to the likeness of Christ as we study your word, as we prayer, as we fellowship with our brothers and sisters? Would you help us to grow in godliness? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.